working our way verse by verse, section by section through this letter. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul and written to a young pastor in the Greek city of Ephesus named Timothy. Uh, he and the Apostle Paul had been friends for, for many years. Paul was his spiritual father, his mentor. But this is an important time for the church, transitioning from the time of the apostles to the time after the apostles. Paul himself is about to, to go to his death and, and martyrdom in Rome. And so he's leaving the, these final words not only to Timothy, but also to the church today. Now, we're going to be, to be looking today at verse 8 to verse 11. That's going to be our main focus today. And that's looking at the theme of laws we'll, we'll talk about. But I'm also going to read verse 12 through verse 17, uh, because that's important for us to understand what Paul is saying in verse 8 to 11. So we're going to have really our conclusion today of our time be looking at verse 12 to 17, but the bulk focusing on verse 8 to 12. So again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful approving, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." This saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the glory and the beauty of the Holy Scriptures that you have given to us. Lord, we 
want to understand your rules, your law, but we pray that as we study this, that, that no one would leave here left in, in guilt or fear or shame, but we pray that we would be reminded so powerfully of the, the power of Christ in the gospel, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so, Father, we pray that you would guide my words today, that I would say only what is true to your word and pleasing in your sight, and that you would work in our hearts to, to understand what you have here, despite my limitations as a preacher, Lord. And, and so I, I pray that, that you would guide us in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are going to focus our attention on two words. And they're, they're two words that we see here in our text. And you, you heard them when I was, when I was reading. In verse 8, we saw the word law. In verse 11, we see the word gospel. The law and the gospel. And our, our focus today primarily will be on the law of God. How do we understand it? What's its role in our life? But then we're not just going to leave you with law, and that's why I was saying earlier that we're going to move into verse 12 to 17, because that's where Paul takes the law, moves to the gospel, and applies it to his own life, that this is relevant for him and his own self before a holy and righteous God and the grace and the mercy of the Lord. And so let's start then with the word law. And what you'll notice right off the bat here in our text is that the law is good. So look at verse 8. He says, now we know this is an established truth among us. He says, we know that the law is good. And he's talking about the law here, continuing the thought back from verse 7, where he was discussing the, the teachers of the law who didn't know what they were talking about. They weren't real teachers of the law, but they were, they were these fake teachers who set themselves up as authorities, but were really involved in the speculation, didn't know what they were talking about. And so Paul here is saying that, no, despite the misunderstanding of the law by these false teachers, the law is good. And you say, well, what does Paul mean by law here? And as we'll see in its unfolding context, that, that Paul is talking about the moral law of God. And the, the moral law of God is ultimately flowing out of the, the character of God, his holiness, his righteousness. They're not arbitrary rules that God sets up on a whim, but they're deeply rooted in who God is. But then God, creating us in his image, put his moral law, wrote his moral law on human hearts in creation that we all, as image bearers, have the law of God written on our hearts. But of course, because of sin, because of rebellion that entered in through the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, that though we have the law of God written in our hearts, we're extremely proficient at suppressing our knowledge of God's standard and our knowledge of God's holiness. And so we can easily set up our own system that is in opposition to the law of God. And that's part of the reason that God, in his holy, infinite wisdom, not only wrote his standard in his law on human hearts, but then he also put it in written form 
and originally giving it to God's people at Mount Sinai in the form of the Ten Commandments. That the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law of God. The first four commandments referring to our, our duty before God, this vertical dimension of the moral law, and then our, from the fifth commandment to the tenth commandment, this, this horizontal relationship to others, that it's a summary of God's moral law. And as we'll see, Paul, when he starts his list of sins later, follows the order of the Ten Commandments, which is one of our clues that that's what he's talking about when he says law here. And what Paul's saying is that this moral law of God, flowing out of the character of God, planted in human hearts, written in the Ten Commandments, expounded on throughout the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament, is good. It's not bad. And I think that that is a, it's very important for us to remember and to recognize, especially as we continue through our passage today, because Paul's going to go through this list of sins, and what we're going to be tempted to do is to say that God's law is bad in some way, that it's restrictive, that it's trying to, to take away human freedom. But, but what Paul's saying is, no, remember that the law is good. And you can think about the law as the, the rules of a loving parent, that I'm sure that, that if you had a loving parent, that they had rules in their household. Um, and that, that those rules were good. And you may not have thought of the rules as good at the time, at at the, when you're a small child. The child wants to run and play without any restrictions, but there's a rule they can't run into the street. And, and they may not always like the fact that they have to look before running out, uh, but you have that rule for their good, for their safety. And you can go through so many rules that parents lay down for children that are good, good for the child, even if the child doesn't recognize it at the time. And that's the same with the law of God, that the law is good. But then we see here that it's good in a qualified way. Because look again at verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And that's interesting because he's putting a, a qualification on the goodness of the law. That he's saying it's good when used lawfully, but then by extension, you could say that the law is bad when used unlawfully. And so you say, well, what are unlawful uses of the law? Well, that's not what Paul expounds here. He, he'll get into the lawful uses of the law in a moment. But I think that, that as we, we think about how the law has been misused throughout the history of the church, that there are two big categories of unlawful uses of law. And so the, the first big category of unlawful use is what we could call antinomianism. And that comes from two Greek words, anti for against and namos for law. And so it means against law. And, and so somebody who is antinomian doesn't like the rules in the Bible, says that the rules are bad, that they restrict human freedom, that the way to be happy is to be free of all standards, all restrictions, to go be your, your true self in the end. That is antinomianism. And, and what it does is it, it tries to turn the law into something bad, into something negative, into something restrictive, damaging to the freedom of humanity. 
But then the other big category of unlawful use of the law is what's called legalism, which is on the opposite side of the spectrum, but it, it tries to say that the law is not bad, but the law is ultimate. The law is, that's it. That you keep the law, you strive to be a good person, and in the end what it does is it makes the, the law harsh and cruel and judgmental. And when we try to look to the law for our salvation, it, it, it destroys what Christianity is about because it's about the grace of God. And so we think about the law, that, that there's the unlawful use of antinomianism, of legalism. They both misunderstand the true purpose of the law. And then you say, well, what is then the true purpose of the law? If it's not antinomianism, it's not legalism, what is the purpose? Well, Paul tells us in, in verse 9, he says that the law is good if used lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. And he's not saying the perfect, but he says that it is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And so what Paul is talking about here is something that, that was very important in a lot of discussion uh, and debate in the Protestant Reformation, that the Protestant Reformers discussed a lot, what is the, the, the use of the law? What is the purpose of the law? And what Paul is highlighting here is what they called the first use of the law. And they, they called it the pedagogical use. It's the, the, the schoolmaster where the, teach, the, the law exposes our sin. It, it teaches us who we are before a holy and righteous God and ultimately drives us to Christ for salvation. The, the second use that they talked about was the civil use, where, well, we're glad that, that there are laws against murder. And that may not change human hearts, but it keeps basic order in society. And then the third use is the law, then, as a, as a guide for believers in our daily life. That is, those who are saved by grace, that we can study the law to see what our Heavenly Father, who loves us, cares about, and to seek to live in a way that reflects who He is. But again, what, what Paul is highlighting here is that, that first use, that it's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. In other words, the law is an MRI machine, <laughs> spiritually, that, that, that you pass under the law, and it shows what is going on deep down in your heart, in your life. It shows your, your spiritual pathology. It shows your, your spiritual disease. And it, it, it's not just to leave you there, just to give you good information about how sick you are, but in light of the problem, then you know what treatment to seek because you know what's actually going on inside. And as you look here in our text, Paul gives this, this list that it, as you scan this law over human lives, what does it reveal? And Paul has a lot of these lists of sins in his letters. And it's interesting that they're, they're never exactly the same. He highlights different sins at different times. They're not intended to be complete or exhaustive. I mean, even here he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's admitting up front, this, this is not everything, but I'm giving you examples of the kinds of sins that the law is intended to expose in the human heart. And so this list here, it's valuable for us in the 21st century, just as it was valuable for the church in Ephesus in the first century. 
And so let's walk through this, this list together, looking at each of these. So verse 9, he says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And so these first items on the list, at first you might say that these seem more abstract. What does it mean to be unholy? Or what does it mean to be profane or to be ungodly? And this is where I, I was helped by commentaries as I was studying this, because they pointed out that, that this list actually follows the order of the Ten Commandments. And that will actually become especially clear as we get into the, to the Fifth Commandment in a moment. But as you look here, you can think of the, the first four commandments, the, the first commandments, the, the object of worship, that we have no other gods before the God of the Bible. Uh, we have the, the manner, the means of worship, that it's not through images. Uh, we have the manner of worship, it's honoring the name of God. And then we have the time of worship, that we keep one day in seven dedicated to the Lord. And so if you were to trace these words, actually in the Greek Old Testament, you would see that these pop up with violations of those first four commandments. That, that what Paul is getting at here is that the ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, this is about the, that violation of our, of our duty to God, our duty to worship and to serve and to have no other God but the God of the Bible. But then our connection to the Ten Commandments becomes even more clear as the list continues in verse 9. So Paul says that the law was laid down for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. So this is moving to the second table of the law, the, the fifth commandment, which says to honor your father and your mother. And you may have a translation in front of you that actually says killing father and mother. Um, and I think that, though, that the ESV here translates it well, striking father and mother, because Paul is going to talk about murder in a moment. He's not repeating himself that, that what he's talking about is a, a grievous violation of the fifth commandment, striking father and mother, dishonoring your parents. And as we think about our world today, that this is a huge problem. We live in a society that has very little respect for authority including the authority of parents over children. You can think of how parents are so often depicted in movies, that parents, especially the fathers, are, are usually depicted as uh, bumbling fools, and that the way that the, the, the main character can have fullness is to escape the uh, stupidity of the parents. That, that theme approach comes over and over again in movies, because that's how we think about life so often here in our modern, individualistic, Western culture. But in Scripture, we see a very different picture. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that's the, the fifth commandment here. But look again at your Bible. And now next, Paul says that the law was handed down for murderers. And this is, of course, moving from the fifth commandment to the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. 
And, then, and on the surface, when you come to this commandment, you would say, this is the one we agree on. That most people agree that intentional homicide is wrong, and that's a good thing. But we can think of, of how this plays out in our world. We think of uh, Derek Chauvin, convicted of the, the murder of George Floyd. We think of school shootings, of violence. We think of suicide, which has risen so much in the last 10 years. We think of abortion. We think of many other expressions of violence against people created in the image of God. And that Jesus tells us, though, that it's even deeper, that the sixth commandment is uh, inclusive of anger as well, that if we are angry at our brother that we've murdered in our hearts. He says in Matthew 5, verse 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so that's then the, the sixth commandment here in our text. But then look again at your Bible. And we move on in the list, and Paul says that the law was also laid down for the sexually immoral. So this is moving then from the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment, not to commit adultery. And the, the Greek word here is pornos, from which we get the English word pornography. But what it's getting at is not just pornography, and it's even a broader word than adultery itself, that uh, in the original language, this is talking about any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That is how the Bible defines this word. And so you can think of what would fall under the category of pornos in the Bible, of sexual immorality. Well, pornography, non-marital sex, premarital sex. But then Jesus, again, <laughs> makes it even deeper in the human heart. In Matthew 5 as well, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But then as you look at, at your Bible again, you'll see that Paul adds something else. So, so here he has, he has one item under the seventh commandment, and then he adds another item under the seventh commandment. He says that the law is laid down for the sexually immoral and for men who practice homosexuality. Because the Bible is very clear that, that sex is God's invention, that God invented sex as a gift, and that he intended it as a gift to be expressed between men and women in the context of marriage. One man, one woman. And Jesus says so in Matthew 19. He says, that you have, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so that's the, the logic of God's design from the very beginning. But then what scripture does is at various points throughout the narrative of the Bible will actually define sins that, that fall outside of that original design. And so I mentioned 
non-marital sex, premarital sex, adultery, pornography, a host of other sexual sins that fall outside of that original design. And Paul here specifically names homosexuality as sin. And this isn't the only place that if you were to, if you're taking notes, you could write down these references. Uh, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, Romans 1, verse 26 to 27, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Jude, verse 7. And so this is very much in the, the teaching of the Bible, part of the, the good teaching of God's law. But as we look at our text in particular, it's interesting to compare different translations to see what Paul is actually getting at. Uh, the Greek word is actually a composite of two words, the word man and the word bed. And so it's, it's literally men bedding men. That's why the ESV translates it, men who practice homosexuality. Uh, the NET translation says uh, practicing homosexuals. The CSB, uh, Jonathan's favorite translation, uh, says men who have sex with men. But all of them are getting at what the original Greek is saying here, that what it's saying is that if you take the seventh commandment, that what falls under the seventh commandment are, are the, these, these lists of heterosexual sin, homosexual sin that fall under this commandment. And so that then is the, the seventh commandment. But then next, Paul moves on to the eighth commandment. So, so look in your Bible again. And here Paul says that the law was also laid down for enslavers. And this is an interesting way that he's dealing with the Eighth Commandment, because we think of the Eighth Commandment, thou shall not steal, is mostly dealing with objects, that you shouldn't take an object that doesn't belong in you. But what Paul's doing here is taking the commandment, and then he's applying it to a specific problem in his time, in his culture, where slavery was an established norm. And he's saying that, that stealing another person to sell them into slavery is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. This is something that, that the law of God is intended to expose in the world. And I, I mentioned in the pastoral prayer that sometimes we think of slavery, enslavement as something that is a problem of the past. But actually, human trafficking is a huge problem in our own culture, our own region, and so this is not something that, that is, is just in history far ago. Uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security says this on their website, that human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. Every year, millions of men, women, and children are trafficked worldwide, including right here in the United States. It can happen in any community and victims can be any age, race, gender, or nationality. And so then as we, we see this prohibition of enslavement of others here in our text, that, that we think, how does this apply to us in the room here? Well, one application is just the awareness that this is something that still goes on in our world. Another application is don't be engaged in human trafficking, and I assume none of you are. Uh, but another one is actually to be aware of how, what are signs of human trafficking, because it's going on around us. And actually, Mark uh, Gaspar 
uh, he teaches, I think, a class where he deals with uh, this problem of human trafficking. And, and he sent me some resources from the Department of Homeland Security that lists signs of human trafficking. And something that you can even Google. What are signs of human trafficking? What to look for? Um, so that you can recognize it if it's actually before you. Because we, I think sometimes it can go under the radar. So that's something I encourage you to do if you ever have time and you're interested. Just Google signs of human trafficking uh, to be aware of this in our world. But then as we wrap up Paul's list today, look at your Bible. Uh, and he moves now to the ninth commandment. He says that, that the law was laid down for liars and perjurers. Of course, this is, the ninth commandment says that we should not bear false witness. The most extreme form of lying, which is perjury, uh, bearing false witness in court. But still under the, that ninth commandment is the, the sense that we should be committed to truth in all things. That we should be people who speak the truth, who love the truth. And I think that as, as this is exposing sins in our lives, that if there's any place where I think probably all of us could see ourselves in this list, it would be here. That we are all tempted to fudge the truth here or there, to spin the narrative, to get something out of another person. We're, we're tempted to say something that in the moment will make somebody else happy or will try to diffuse a situation, tell somebody what they want to hear. And so we, we sacrifice truth in the long term for just a momentary bit of peace in the moment. But what scripture says is that we should be committed to speaking the truth. We could, should be committed to not lying, that this should be something that, that characterizes our life. But we recognize how far short we fall of this standard. But then the very end of the list here, look in your Bible, verse 10, Paul says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And I love how the, the ESV translation has a footnote that the Greek can also be taken healthy, that what is contrary to healthy doctrine, that there is something about the, the, the doctrine, the true doctrine of God that isn't just true and, and sound in an academic sense, but it's, it's healthy, it's what is good for human life and for, for human flourishing. And, and so he says, whatever else is contrary. He doesn't talk about the 10th commandment, but probably because that's more of an internal sin where you, you covet, so you murder. You covet, so you steal. You covet, so you commit adultery, that it flows into the other things that Paul has talked about. But before we, we move on from this list, I want to address three ways that we may misuse or misunderstand this list, especially in our time and our culture. And the first way that we can misuse the list before us is that we try to, to pick and choose what we like and what we dislike on the list. That you may be happy that it talks about enslavement, about human trafficking, but may be uncomfortable with the way it talks about sexual sin. But it's interesting that if you were listening to this being preached in Savannah, Georgia in 1810, you may have actually thought about it very differently. You may have been very comfortable with the teaching on sexuality, but then very uncomfortable with the teaching on enslavement. And so we, we see then how different people in different times and different cultures would be uncomfortable with different items on this list from the Apostle Paul. 
And so then we have to ask the question, by what standard can we pick and choose from the list what we like and what we dislike? Is it what is popular in our culture? Well, we know that cultures can be wrong, so that's not a good standard. Is it our own opinion, our own subjective opinion? Well, we know that we can be wrong. And then is there some transcendent standard by which we can pick and choose what we like and what we dislike on this list? And for Christians, the transcendent standard is actually God's word. <laughs> uh, and and because, because it is the, the objective measure by which we measure other things. And so when we come to this, we, we, we sit under the authority of God, trusting the goodness of his word, that what his word is not only true, but it's right, it's healthy, it's what is good for human beings. So that's the first misuse, is picking and choosing. But the second profound misuse of this list would be only to focus on the sins of others. And I think that this is where Christians uh, can especially go off the rails here, where we go down the list and then we especially want to focus on here's the sins of our culture, here's the sins of other people, here's what others are doing. Oh, our culture walking away from the Lord. And, and so we can speak at length about the list while leaving ourselves in the category of the good and the, the innocent. But the whole point of this list is to be the MRI machine scanning not just other people, but scanning our own hearts. And so if we read this, we recognize, well, if I've ever hated someone, I've, I've broken the sixth commandment. If I've ever lusted, I've broken the seventh commandment. If, if I've ever taken something that doesn't belong to me, I've broken the eighth commandment. If I've ever lied, I've broken the, the ninth commandment, that, that we all fall under this list. And so the purpose here is to expose your sin. The purpose here is to expose my sin. And if, if we don't see that, then we're missing what Paul is trying to do, what he's, he's trying to say to us here. But then the, the third and the, the final misuse of Paul's list here is to focus on our own sin, which may be better than focusing on the sins of others, but we focus on our own sin without hope. We focus on our own sin that brings nothing but guilt, fear, shame, and despair. And that, I think, is, is the, the reason that people turn to antinomianism that I talked about, that people become anti-law. Because they can look at the, the misuse of the law by legalists who only want to focus on the sins of others, and then they say, well, if, if you talk about somebody's activity as being sin, that'll create guilt. And if you create guilt, you'll create shame. If you create shame, people will withdraw from society. If they withdraw from society, they'll fall into depression. If they fall into depression, they'll fall into suicidal thoughts. If they fall into suicidal thoughts, eventually this could end innocent lives. And so the calling then is to... Is to try as much as we can to affirm what everyone else is doing as long as they're not hurting someone else. That is the great concern, I think, that, that people have with a list like we see here. But I think that, that that is a misunderstanding, a misuse of the purpose of the law. Because the purpose of the law is, yes, to scan our lives and to expose our sins, but not just to give us a, a fatal report of the prognosis and to leave us in fear and shame and guilt, but as 
our sin is exposed through the law is then to push us and drive us to Christ and the gospel. And so this is where then we, we move from talking about the law to the gospel. And, and we'll wrap up here talking about the gospel. And as I said, we'll, we'll get more into the, the verses that focus on the gospel, verse 12 to 20 next week. But I just want to end it here because in verse 11, Paul goes through this, this list of sins. And then he says something really amazing. He says that this, this list is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so he's saying, when you use the law lawfully, there is no contradiction between law and gospel. That all of the rules, all of that it exposes in ourselves and in the world is in accordance with the good news of Christianity because it, it shows why we need the work of Jesus. And that's why Paul, in this remarkable fashion, moves from talking about abstract sins on a list to himself, that, that he turns to his own spiritual biography, that, that this isn't about the sins of other people. It's about his sin before a holy God. Because in verse 12, he, to verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Who was Paul? Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But he says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in an unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So here's a man who participated in the murder, the stoning of Stephen in Acts. Here's a man who who committed so many crimes, but yet he received this free unmerited love and mercy of God poured out in his life that for him the law didn't leave him in guilt and in shame but the law showed him how much Jesus had done for him and actually launched him in a ministry to proclaim the good news to the world and then we'll, we'll leave it here with verse 15 he says this sorry that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That he's saying these sayings, he, there are several trustworthy sayings in these letters, and many think that these were short, creedal statements that the church circulated, uh, that, that maybe the people in Ephesus knew this saying, that Christ came in, into the world to save sinners. And, and it's not just to save other sinners, but he says, that I am the foremost of sinners. And so that, that's true for all of us here today, that, that we look at the list of sins, we look at the commandments of God, we look at the law, it exposes our sins, but then we always keep in our vision that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to sa save sinners like you, to save sinners like me, and that the reaction of all of us then is to say, I am the foremost of sinners, but yet I have received mercy through Jesus dying on the cross, rising again from the dead to, to purchase eternal life for us, to pay the penalty for our sin. And it's that which we see here in the Lord's Supper, that, that we see here, we see the, 
the law in one sense in this meal because we see that Christ came to take the punishment that our sins deserve. All that the law exposed is someone who never broke the law himself. And, and Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was a sinner, but because he was taking our sin on himself, coming to save sinners. But then what, what he offers to each and every one of us is this offer of eternal life. That, that is, is for anyone here um, to, to, to pray to Christ, Lord, I receive you as my Savior, to trust in Jesus for salvation, to say, Jesus, I want you as my, my Lord. And that means that no guilt, no shame, nothing that, you, that you've done defines who you are, that if you are in Christ Jesus, it is Jesus who defines you in his life and his work. And so as we come to this meal, if you're still at the, the place where you've never repented and trusted in Jesus, um, if you think that the, that the law is bad, that, that you, you don't see yourself as a sinner in the sight of God, that you think you're just a, a good person who can be accepted based on your own goodness, uh, then I would encourage you to, to wait, to not take this. Uh, the Bible says that by taking this without believing in Jesus, that we can actually eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Uh, that is a serious thing to come here and that we wouldn't want to put anybody in the place of hypocrisy of taking this without uh, believing. But if you are in a place where the, the, the MRI of God's law has scanned your heart, scanned your life, and that it has exposed who you are and you recognize, I am the chief of sinners, um, I cannot save myself, that I need Jesus, and you're looking to Jesus for salvation, who came to save sinners, then you come to this meal freely to receive the gift of, of Christ. Uh, come trusting in Jesus as one who has repented, trusted in Jesus, made, been baptized, been made that public by being part of a church that preaches the gospel, not uh, barred by the action of another church from participating in this meal. But, but we come ultimately as those who can profess our, our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. So if you turn to, to page uh, 8 in your order of worship, and we see the Apostles' Creed there. So let's read together this summary of the gospel, the good news of Christianity. So read with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he was given, after he had given thanks, he, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as, often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come when you're ready. Uh, Gluten-free is on that side, regular is on this side. Take your cut back to your chair, and we'll, we'll take it together at the end. But let's pray together. 
Um, Father, we thank you for your law. We know that your law is not arbitrary, that it is good. But Lord, we also acknowledge that your law can be misused, can be used unlawfully. So Lord, we repent for the ways that we have tried to live our own way, have denied the goodness of your law, have said that your law is something bad for our life that will damage our ability to be our true selves. Lord, we also repent of the way that we've only focused on the sins of others and and been um, legalists pointing at what others are doing without actually examining ourselves. But Lord, today we pray that each and every one of us can come under the, the scrutiny of the law, um, that, that we will see where we fall short, that we will see our, our desperate need. But Father, we pray. I pray for anyone here who may be stuck in that place of guilt or fear or shame. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would show them the freedom, the, the light, the, the hope that they have, that Christ has, set us, has come to set us free from sin, uh, that he came into the world to seek and to save the lost. And Lord, we acknowledge that we here at Hope Church are the chief of sinners, Lord. We are the ones who ultimately need your grace and your mercy and your love poured out for us. So, Father, we come to this meal um, not with any pretense of our own righteousness, but come fully and utterly looking to Jesus and his grace and his mercy, his shed blood, his atoning work. And we ask that, that in your mercy that you would use this visible sign and seal of the gospel, this picture of the gospel before us to, to remind us of the good news afresh so that we can love you and serve you more as we go into this upcoming week. And so we pray all of this in the name of Jesus.